Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, an Arizona author with over 40 books to his credit finds new success as a ghostwriter. I was more interested in telling stories that people would actually read than in stroking my ego by having my name on the book cover. Plus, summer will be here soon, and we'll talk to a librarian about some good reads for the season. What other types of reading has resonated with them? Maybe there's a particular facet of fiction that they really like. But first, Sasha Graham is the founder of Tiny Ninja Books and is the author of the children's book, Milo Does Not Like Mornings. She has a new kid-lit offering that was released in April entitled Whitney Wins Everything. Graham had a storied career as an executive for Walt Disney Studios before moving to the Valley several years ago. I grew up in a little town in Oregon called Silverton. It's about an hour south of Portland. And from there, moved to California, to San Francisco, and then L.A. And then eventually my husband and I moved here to Arizona in 2011. Yeah, I know where Silverton is. I have a, f- a friend that lives there, actually. I haven't seen him in quite some time, but a uh, beautiful country there. Mm-hmm. Am I assuming correctly that your time in L.A. is what took you to Walt Disney Studios, where you were a former executive? Right. So I went to University of San Francisco, and after I graduated, I stayed in San Francisco for several years working. And one of the jobs that I had was working as a publicist handling Walt Disney Studios' Northern California publicity and promotions. From that job, I left and I went and did a bunch of tech PR. It was during this tech boom. And then Disney came calling and said, hey, we have an in-house job down here at the studio and we think you'd be perfect for it. And so I went down and uh, worked there in L.A. for a long time. What did that experience teach you about wanting to become an author and specifically an author of children's books? I mean, talk about having a seat in the room. It was just a master class. I got to work uh, with all of the filmmakers for the animated features. So I would listen to them do interviews and talk about their storytelling process. And particularly with you know any of the feature animation, but um, Pixar in particular really, really emphasizes story. And I heard them say over and over and over again that the technology did not matter at all if your story didn't resonate. And that was something that I really took with me in my own writing and that I really thought, you know, not only does the story have to be great, but it really needs to appeal on multiple levels. You know, that if you're doing something that is targeting children, you know, a children's book, a children's early reader or picture book, if it's being read to a child by a grown up, that if you can put some little things in there, little nuggets for those caregivers to enjoy at the same time, boy, it's just a home run. Yeah, that's a really great point. And of course, this show is devoted to storytelling in many different forms. But it's like the old adage, right? If it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. I mean, granted, when you're working with animation, you can manipulate the characters digitally, so to speak. But you're right. If it's live action and there's actual actors as opposed to animation, if the script isn't there, if the story isn't good, it doesn't matter how great of an actor the person is. That's exactly right. I worked on the movie Monsters Incorporated, and it was this new technology to make Sully's hair or, you know, his fur move in the wind, you know, look like the the wind was causing this fur to move. And everybody wanted to talk about that in interviews. And they said, you know, 
it's at its core, it's a buddy comedy. You know, this is about Mike Wazowski and Sully. And if that relationship doesn't come across, you're not going to care what his fur looks like. You're the founder of Tiny Ninja Books and the author of Milo Does Not Like Mornings, uh, as well as your latest release, Whitney Wins Everything. Where did you come up with the term Tiny Ninja? The term itself, my sons nicknamed my daughter that while I was still pregnant because they loved the Three Ninjas movies that came out in the 80s. My kids are all together too young to have watched those movies. Somebody might have pointed them in that direction. So they wanted a third ninja to complete, you know, their crime fighting trifecta. And so I told him, you know, your sister's going to be awesome, but she's going to be really small at first. And so they said, that's okay. She'll be our tiny ninja. So I loved this phrase. And so I really took it with me and I started writing all these stories. And when we moved to Arizona, my kids were just starting to sort of leave the nest to go to elementary school. And I thought to myself, I have no greater wish than for them to trust their inner voice as much as they trust these voices that are coming from the outside, these teachers and coaches and friends. And I thought, wait a minute, what if their inner voice were to be personified as a tiny ninja, something really quiet and really strong, kind of fierce, that's always with them, if only they are to listen. And that's where really Tiny Ninja Books was born. Tell me a little bit more about who is Whitney, the title character in Whitney Wins Everything, and kind of give us an outline of the theme of this latest release, as well as maybe the target age group. Absolutely. So, Four to eight-year-olds particularly love this book, although I like to say, you know, from two to 92 is great. Whitney is a firecracker. She wins everything, as we say in the title. She will work to win the macaroni and cheese eating contest. She will (laughs) race her brothers to the bathroom to brush her teeth. And she's rewarded for this. You know, she has all the trophies. She has all the medals. And she's always picked first for every team. So... She's really surprised one day at school when another little girl is handing out birthday invitations and she doesn't get one. And not surprisingly, you know, she's really hurt and confused. And so she asks another child, look, you know, why am I not invited? And the other kiddo says, well, they're going to have games at the party and you'll just win everything. And it's the first time that she's faced with the possibility that you know, the way that she has always done things maybe isn't serving her anymore. You know, that she's been rewarded and rewarded and rewarded for winning. And suddenly she's not being rewarded for it anymore. And so she goes to her soccer game and they don't keep score, which she thinks is the most ridiculous thing she's ever heard. And she gets in the game and she's, you know, absolutely just killing it during this game. And she's scoring goals and her tiny ninja points out a little boy who's not very good, but he's having a very good time. And Whitney ultimately has to make this choice about whether to score this final goal herself or to make the pass and to trust her teammate. It kind of is reminiscent of a situation that you might have in school, for instance, where you have a child who's very outgoing and pretty knowledgeable, right? And they want to answer every question that the teacher asks, not necessarily, you know, to be a teacher's pet, just that they're so engaged, but they don't sort of understand part of education and obviously part of humanity is building a community and letting other people be part of something. That's exactly right. And I am a big proponent of competition 
and of winning. You know, I would never have Whitney lose in this. You know, this is not that book. This is not the book where she learns how to lose gracefully. But I do think that the greatest pleasures in life And I really believe this, the greatest pleasures in life come from being part of a team and having teammates who support you and who you support. And that goes for the classroom too. You know, if you can have a collaborative learning environment where people are contributing equally, um, it benefits everyone. Sasha Graham is author of the latest Whitney Wins Everything, preceded by Milo Does Not Like Mornings, and the founder of Tiny Ninja Books. Sasha, thanks so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You can find out a bit more about Sasha Graham on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, an Arizona author with over 40 books to his credit finds new success as a ghostwriter. I'm Tom Maxidon. And you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Do you want to enjoy some local music and see the great outdoors from your laptop? You can find it online at KJZZ's Tiny Desert Concert page. Just go to tinydesertconcert.kjzz.org. KJZZ offers original podcasts, including stories about low-income and homeless populations. We went to the Human Services campus. We started a group called Backpack. They launched a health navigation and transportation service for the homeless and underserved. Listen to the Inhospitable podcast or get your daily dose of news with the Sun Up podcast. Find the podcasts at hearearizona.org or Spotify. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest has written and co-written more than 40 action-adventure novels. I first met Sean Ellis at an Arizona author fair three years ago. Of course, the pandemic forced the cancellation of such events until recently. But Ellis used the last couple of years to make a lucrative shift in his career to ghostwriting. It actually gave me lots of time to write, especially early on. I work as a paraeducator in Paradise Valley School District, and... uh, so initially when classes were shut down, I was had lots of time to write from home. So I got caught up on some stuff and uh, was able to produce the most lucrative stuff so far. That's interesting because you've written or co-authored more than 40 action-adventure novels. What made you want to try your hand at ghostwriting? I realized pretty early on that I wasn't going to be able to get traction with my own work. I just didn't have it in me to be that much of a publicist and to just put in the work to try to market my stuff. But I could tell that in the traditional marketplace, brand names really sell books. You know, James Patterson, Tom Clancy, even Clive Cussler, kind of my personal literary hero, uh, they expand their brand because those brand names, you know, sell books. So I felt like I would have a better chance of making it successfully uh, if I could attach myself to somebody who was more successful. Ghostwriting, I kind of fell into it through networking, but I was more interested in telling stories that uh, people would actually read than in stroking my ego by having my name on the book cover. <laughs> Who asks a ghostwriter to write? If you ever see a book written by a celebrity, it's almost a guarantee that it was written by a ghostwriter. Just to get my terminology right, in a ghostwriting agreement, there are, there's an author, and that's the person whose name is on the cover, and then there's the writer. And that's what the contract stipulates. So if I say author, I'm talking about the person I'm writing for. But yeah, any celebrity author is almost certainly ghostwritten. In my case, it was um, an author who 
uh, my first ghostwriting job that came along, it was an author who was a special forces military veteran who had authored a series and they were looking for somebody to keep writing the series because the original author who did it had gone on to much commercial success. He's a bestseller in his own right now. So I can't tell names, of course, because that's part of the arrangement. Right. But, and um, through networking, my name was put out there. Uh, a literary agent that was representing a friend of mine contacted me and said, are you willing, interested in doing this? And initially, I was hesitant because I didn't feel like I was qualified to write that kind of a book. Um, I am a veteran, but I'm not a special horses veteran by any means. But when I heard how much it would pay, I said, well, I'm going to give this a try. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was about to ask you if your experience as an Army National Guard person in Afghanistan played into that book. And I mean, do you draw out the plots or is that something that's already given to you? Yeah, it's different in every arrangement. In that case, I was given a few points that they wanted to include in the story and uh, pretty much told to go to town and uh, come up with a story. And then, of course, there's back and forth between the author. Um, there have been some where I pretty much do it all. There's others where the author is very involved and there's lots of back and forth. Usually, though, uh, I come up with a lot of the story and they like it. So it, it's, it's uh, mutually beneficial. What types of genres have you written for in fiction, and have you also written nonfiction? So in fiction, I started out writing, I guess what I would call Indiana Jones-type action-adventure books. When I got into ghostwriting, that moved more into the military fiction or action-adventure thriller market. And I have written nonfiction. I write magazine articles for a... Um, Prepper Survival Guide magazine and a Backwoods Survival Guide magazine, which uh, I didn't start out as an expert in either of those fields. But um, again, networking is everything. It's really integral to writing and to developing readers as well. Who do you recommend people search out and what types of things should people be doing in their networking so they don't kind of waste their time? I mean, obviously, you got to be willing to put in some time. For me... It happened by um, just reaching out to authors who uh, wrote the kind of books that I enjoyed reading and that I wanted to reach those readers. I asked them for cover blurbs. And this, of course, goes back to uh, the early 2000s. Some will, will be cooperative and helpful and offer you tips and some won't. And so you just got to put it out there. Obviously, social media is a great way to meet these authors. And uh, they're usually you know, very responsive. That said, you know, you don't want to be a pest, but I think it's got to start with a story. You've got to have something already ready to be published or to, uh, to take to a literary agent. Um, but you've got to actually have the book done so that they can look at it. And that starts that relationship. I can only really give my story, which was um, I had written three or four books. I was looking for an author to give me cover praise blurbs. And so I reached out to Jeremy Robinson, who is, he's mostly a self-published success story. He did have some mainstream books published a few years ago. And uh, all I asked for was, hey, can you read this and give me a blurb, say how great it is. And that led to a relationship, uh, which ultimately he then uh, asked me to collaborate with him on some books. I wrote several books with him. And then it was his literary agent who was representing that author who was in need of a ghostwriter. And so it all kind of, you know, one thing led to another. 
Sean Ellis, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing your experiences with us as a fiction writer and a ghost writer and you know marketing and, and all things literary. I really appreciate your time, Sean. Thanks for talking to me. You can find out a bit more about Sean Ellis on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, summer will be here soon, and we'll talk to a librarian about recommended reads for the season. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You have your favorites, favorite online store, favorite park to take the kids or the dog. It's the season to get out of the house. And KJZZ is your favorite news station. Stay connected to important updates and entertainment, the number one news station in the Valley and your source for all your favorites. Become a member today at KJZZ.org. You can get a world-class education without having to leave home. Rio Salado College offers affordable online classes, certificates, and degree programs, award-winning faculty, and flexible scheduling options. Classes start most Mondays. More information at riosalado.edu. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest on this episode is all about books. Sarah Storr is co-chair of library services at Rio Salado College. And, of course, KJZZ is licensed to the Maricopa County Community College District and is a service of Rio Salado College. Storr began her career as a librarian two decades ago, and that certainly gives her street cred for some summer reading recommendations. I started my career in libraries in 2002 after graduating from college, and I was at an elementary school library in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I loved it. And I realized if I wanted to continue that work, it would probably be best to go on ahead and get my master's in library science. So I did that, and I have been working in academic libraries since then. And is that what brought you to the Phoenix metro region? That is, in fact. And so I've been here for the past 13 years, and I've been at Rio Salado for the past four And what do you do there? Is there a specialty? Um, You know, because most people think, you know, librarians, they stock shelves, they check people in and out. They don't really know a whole lot about the whole process of a library. Right. So at Rio, I, along with one of my wonderful colleagues, Karen, serve as co-chair of the library services department. So we're responsible for overseeing, along with our awesome library team, the library's physical space, but we also have a really robust online collection as well to serve the students at Rio who are from all across Maricopa County, the state of Arizona, and the country as well. So while we oversee those spaces, another thing that we focus on is making sure that students who come to Rio Salado have the information literacy skills that they'll need to succeed beyond um, in their careers outside of the college. So we work a lot with uh, faculty throughout the college to ensure that there's information literacy uh, kind of across the curriculum, whether it's programs at Rio or individual courses. And then one of the things that I also do is a lot of collection development work, which that's just library jargon. That means I get to make decisions about (laughs) what we put in our collections, whether it's the physical collection or our online resources. I want to go back to what you said about information literacy. We're talking about how to access quality information, right? Because there's such a large degree of 
information that it's fantastic. It's not truthful often. Right. It's fantastic. And it's also really overwhelming the amount of information that's at our fingertips these days. So we try to teach students a lot about understanding what makes a particular source of information credible both in general, just in terms of all of the news we might be digesting, for example, but also in the context of the specific discipline that they might be learning about or the program that they might be enrolled in. Our physical collection isn't as large as some of the other Maricopa Community Colleges. Our online collection in terms of databases, you know, we subscribe to over 100 databases. And within those, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of items. As far as the makeup, what you have there, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you is this is a program about literature. We talk about fiction of all types, uh, poetry, uh, often memoir. You know, we've delved into children's titles as well. So that's why I wanted to talk to you just to kind of get a sense because summer is going to be around the corner before we know it. So I wondered if we could start off maybe with a few titles that you might recommend and we can start wherever you want. I'll give a little caveat to the recommendations I brought with me. I know that when I reach summer and I think about my my summer reading, I'm often of two minds. I've either reached summer and I feel relaxed <laughs> and ready to tackle something like War and Peace, for instance, or I get to the summer, we're multiple years into a global pandemic, there's a war going on, countless other terrible things, and maybe I don't quite have that bandwidth to tackle something as as pithy, let's say. So right. I've, I've brought a variety of titles to recommend that will hopefully meet people where they're at in terms of their summer reading bandwidth. If we're starting with fiction, the first item up on my list to recommend is Jennifer Egan's The Candy House. My book club is actually reading this one right now, and we devoured her A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer in 2011. So The Candy House is a companion to that novel, but you don't need to have read Goon Squad in order to dig into The Candy House. I like that, that you can just kind of jump in, because obviously, as you said, sometimes there's a huge backstory that you've got to have if the book that you jump into is going to make sense. So I like that about that recommendation. Right. And this one does not require that. And so the story opens in 2010 and it explores a fictional technology called Own Your Unconscious, which is basically a tool that lets you access all of your memories and share them in exchange for getting access to the memories of everyone else. Uh, Doesn't sound like a huge leap from where we currently are. (laughs) So Candy House looks at the darker sides of technology and explores how Own Your Unconscious impacts characters as their lives and paths cross. And this one is, it really feels like the best of both worlds in terms of summer reading because it's giving you something to think about. But it's also written in a way that's really interesting and accessible and unique. And what age group do you think this works I'd go older high school through adults for that one. Okay. All right. And how about another one? Okay. So another one that I brought with me is The Swimmers by Julie Otsuka, who also wrote When the Emperor Was Divine. And so the premise of this short novel is really simple. There's a crack that appears in the local swimming pool impacting the swimmers who are there to enjoy their, you know, usual recreational pool time. And so the book centers on the impact that that crack has on one swimmer in particular, whose name is Alice, and she's in the early stages of dementia. And so as the book unfolds, 
it delves into her decline and her relationship with her estranged daughter. And this one clocks in at only 132 pages. So if maybe you aren't feeling like you've got that war and peace bandwidth right now, this one is beautifully written and it's not going to require a huge time investment. Well, let's switch genres, if you don't mind, uh, and head to poetry because we do focus a fair amount of poetry here on Word. When I thought about specific recommendations for poetry, there were two things that came to mind for me. And so the first is Time as a Mother by Ocean Vuong, who's also the author of just a beautiful novel, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. This is Vuong's second poetry collection, which was written after the death of his mother, and it explores his relationship with her. Vuong's writing is just lovely, and I would absolutely encourage anyone who hasn't read his work to seek him out. How do you make a recommendation to somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience in poetry? Maybe they were, I hate to use the word forced to read it when they were in school, but they're looking to kind of expand their horizon. What might get them back into it and, and maybe appreciate it better as an adult, for instance? So from a librarian perspective, when I hear that someone is hesitant maybe about exploring a genre, I try to get more information from them about what other types of reading has resonated with them. Maybe there's a particular facet of fiction that they really like. And once I have a little bit more information about the types of titles that they usually find themselves reading, I can then point them to some authors that I think might align with their previous experiences to hopefully make that genre more accessible. And then, you know, I also rely on my amazing coworkers as well when I maybe don't have an author right at the ready. uh, They're usually able to jump in and provide lots of additional input and come up with recommendations too that they think might work for someone who's ready to enter that genre, but maybe a little bit hesitant, like you say. Yeah, it's a great advantage of having bookish co-workers. Uh, Have them here, and it's wonderful. How about another volume of poetry? Another one that I would recommend is titled Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head, which I love that title. That's by Warsan Shire. Listeners might recognize Shire's words, No One Leaves Home Unless Home is the Mouth of a Shark, which is from a poem that she wrote more than a decade ago that's often referenced in conversations about refugees. This is her first full-length collection of poetry, and it draws from her life, pop culture, and the world around us. Shire also contributed to Beyonce's Lemonade visual album, The Poetry. Yeah, so this is another great one that I think uh, would resonate with a lot of folks. Let's move into memoir finally, and what's your first recommendation on the list for that? First on my list is Chiara Allegria Uday's recently published memoir, which is titled My Broken Language. Uday's is a playwright, and she wrote the book of In the Heights, as well as the screenplay for the film adaptation of the musical. My Broken Language chronicles her growing up between cultures in Philadelphia. She comes from a large Puerto Rican family. I haven't actually read this one, but I cannot wait to take it to the beach with me later this summer. It's gotten all sorts of buzz. Yeah, it's one of those where you see the jacket and you're like, uh, definitely going to pick that one up at some point, right? Exactly. Check. I'll take that. And how about uh, Final Memoir? Yeah, David Cypress's What's So Funny, a cartoonist memoir. 
Cypress is a longtime cartoonist for The New Yorker who actually knew from the time he was six that he wanted to be a cartoonist for them. But what's amazing to me is that he had his cartoons rejected for 25 years before he finally got one published. Yeah, I actually heard a fantastic interview with Terry Gross from Fresh Air with him, and what an amazing story. That's something that I would definitely like to pick up, and quite funny, I would imagine, as well. Absolutely. As you can imagine, a cartoonist, uh, like their memoir would be, it's totally infused with humor, and he really explores his family growing up in New York City and then his craft. So absolutely another great one for listeners to consider. Well, Sarah Storer with Rio Salado College, I want to thank you so much for coming to us and talking to us about some summer reads and we appreciate all the hard work that you and your colleagues do there at Rio Salado Library and uh, just you know all of your recommendations. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And just a reminder, you don't have to be a student to use any of the Maricopa Community College's libraries. You just have to be a resident of the county and get set up with checkout privileges. Information on how to connect with Rio Salado College Library is on our website, Word kjzz.org. We'll be back later this month with our penultimate episode of the season. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for supporting public radio and literature in Arizona and the region. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.